what we've tried to do is make technology part of the core of what we do, purely because we see it as an enabler. And it's an enabler uh, rather than the, than the the thing that goes first. Mm. What has to come first is how we help our clients, how we help our customers and our partners. And technology enables us to do that in a smarter, better way. But ultimately, it's the people who join that up together that deliver the outcomes, the solutions, the proposals that make the difference. Today's episode is brought to you by Exige International. Exige is an executive search and recruitment training business that Fiona and myself have been working on for the last 19 years. We provide technology and innovation-focused executives to the insurance and wider financial services sector with a focus on the UK and Swiss markets. We love working with businesses and leaders who share our values here at Exige. There's a humility, integrity, assertiveness, and resilience. And if you want to find out what our clients say about working with Exige and how we could deliver your search in four to six weeks, then please do check out our site, exigeinternational.com. And Exige is spelled E-X-I-G-E. And as a business, we donate 10% of all of our search revenue to forest protection charities. We do some great work with Rainforest Trust UK and have already contributed and protected some of the world's most important habitats. The other part of our business is training, where I teach a six-week program called Found. This is where we teach executives how to interview and hire their dream team. It's a really easy six-week program where at the end of it, I can show you exactly how you can interview and select with confidence a world-class team. If you have a search or you'd like to discuss recruitment training, then please visit our website, exigeinternational.com. Exige is spelled E-X-I-G-E. And tell the team William sent you. In today's episode, I interview Praveena Ladva, the Chief Digital Transformation Officer at Swissry. Swissry is one of the world's biggest reinsurance companies, known for their work in supporting the evolution of the insurance market through many digital partnerships and new business lines. Praveena is a key part of the leadership team delivering this transformation, and she is known for being a humble, smart, and assertive technology and innovation leader. I wanted Praveena on the show so she could share her experience in creating and managing digital change within the 150-year-old industry cornerstone that is Swissery. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and without further ado, I give you Praveena Ladva. Welcome, Praveena Ladva, to Search with Purpose. Thanks very much for being here with us today. Thank you, William. That's great. It's great to be here and uh, be part of this podcast. Excellent. Well, Praveena, um, for those of our listeners out there who don't know you, don't know a bit about your background, maybe you could just introduce yourself and what you what you do. Yeah, you. no, happy to. Yeah, so I'm currently the uh, Digital Transformation Officer for Swiss Re Group. Um, and that's actually a, a very new role. In fact, I've only been in the role for about 20 days. So I was appointed on that on the 1st of uh, July. Prior to that, I was a CTO for Life Capital, which is our um, B2B2BC business within Life Capital and Swiss Re, and really bringing our tech startups uh, platform businesses to life. Um, so I, was do- I did that for three years. And before that, I was in, in banking and financial services, where I did a whole host of roles, everything from CIO in the payments industry to mergers and acquisitions, leading large operations center. And if you really want to go all the way back and people go, why did you, how did you land in insurance? So I go, well, actually, when I first graduated, I actually sold insurance. Oh, wow. so I, was a, really? I was actually a financial advisor back in the day. Yeah. Really? What type of insurances were you selling? Everything. I did mortgages, life, investments, pensions, the whole lot. Wow. And how were you doing? Yeah. Was that sort of like door-to-door type thing? You're in sitting with people? No, 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 no. It was face-to-face in a branch network. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's yeah. a great place to learn the trade, definitely. Yes. What did you, yeah. what did you study at university? Bizarrely, uh, and a lot of my customers asked me at the time, how did you get to do be a financial advisor when you have a history degree? So... Well, and I just did it because I enjoyed it. So yeah, history. What was your favorite yeah. part of history to study? Um, American history, mm. uh, and also um, 
as, as I explained to my son, kings and queens of England. Kings and queens. I tell you, my son <laughs> loves that stuff as well, actually. He's only yeah. 12 and he's really obsessed by that. Yes. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I think my, my, I enjoyed history as a, as a, as a kid, but it wasn't actually until I read um, Wolf Hall that I became mm-hmm. like really excited by the idea of um, history in its sort of in a sort of dramatic context. So yes. um, I think sometimes you know history really can do with being brought to life, and um, those books were you know Hilary Mantel's books were fantastic. I, I really love yeah. those as an introduction to to history. But cool. So you're a historian who has journeyed through uh, selling insurance to banking, and then back to insurance is where you are now and you're working for Swiss Re and and again for those um, out there who maybe don't know about Swiss Re or kind of a vague idea could you just introduce Swiss Re and sort of yeah certainly yeah no absolutely so we're uh, the global reinsurance company that's how people would recognize us and so people are wondering what does a re stand for that's Mm -hmm. what it is Uh, so clearly headquarters in Zurich but we're a global presence and our speciality is b2b so we're really a b2b organization that builds uh, partnerships with many of our clients to help them get the best from their businesses. But also, you know, from a purpose perspective, our purpose is really to make the world resilient in in its broader sense. So you can look at anything from, you know, the current situation we're at the moment, and we're doing lots of things in the current COVID environment to help uh, both governments and our clients better assess risk. You look at the disasters that we've had, you know, the various, the floods and the hurricanes. So we clearly had a role in terms of security and providing resilience there, all the way down to individuals like you and I, in terms of how do we close a protection gap? Because actually on the outside, people go, insurance is so boring. But if you really go underneath the service surface and say, what is insurance really trying to do? It's really trying to protect, mm. protect and resilience. That's what it's about. So... Mm. Um, so, so maybe that's why a historian did land in insurance, because it does seem yes. like it's a, a business where you have to look backwards to sort of figure out what might come in the future and um, being aware of what's happened in the past. And, exactly. Yeah. Yep. There you yep. go. Maybe, maybe those kings yep. and queens, they knew about I'll, I'll try that one next time. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I, mean, the, I did have an interview um, earlier today, actually, with um, Mr. Dr. Marcus Schmalbach at RiskX, and we were talking about insurance and and um i did make the passing comment about it also being about gambling as well and so it's the idea that we have to think about the past as a you know kind of making an educated gamble on what will happen in the future so um, that was an interesting way to explore the concept of insurance and, and risk and what it is that risk transfer um but we won't we won't dwell there because i i think today i was really keen to you know talk to you about technology and your role as a chief digital um Technology transformation officer, you know, technology is at the heart of what you do, right? So, um, how do you define what is success in a modern technology organization? Yeah, and I think so. I'd almost go back a, a step and go always look at it, what is the value you're trying to create, or what is the solution or the pain point you're trying to arrive at. So, I always come at technology from a, a commercial and a solving a, a problem perspective. And, and technology is only the one of the answers to it. So I would go, I would start from what is a need, either it's very customer centric, client centric, or solving some efficiency challenge. And then I would bring the technology to life and make it fit for purpose to deliver that value. But I think there's a slight, slight nuance to that. So it's not the technology alone that's going to make the difference. So I think it's the tech, you know, like back in the day, people call it the tin and wire, but now it's, you know, clearly different, but it's going to be really simple. It is about the tech and that's quite binary. You either do it or you don't. But I think the secret ingredient is how do you then make it so it's uh, tailored to solve the problem you're going to try and solve for? How do you change the processes around it so you really get the value from the tech? How do you have the right culture and the mindset and the delivery ethos to make that really impactful because I think you can do any one of those on their own and it's not going to achieve your objective. But I think it's the combination of the tech, the process and the people together that derive the value. Hmm. So have you found then in, in terms of a measurement of tech process and people, are they, are they an equal measure or is there sort of a, a bias towards one of them being more important than the other? I think they all have their part to play, but I think, it's how they come together and ultimately solve the challenge. So 
if let's take a real example if you're trying to solve a you know you were you were you had a website and you had uh, proper pro propositions on there that you wanted to sell and all of a sudden you found you know you had hundreds of people coming to that website but nobody was getting to the end of that journey so there you could have analytics that would give you the data and insight that will tell you that but then it's the the knowledge of the product owner in this example or the owner or the PL owner of that website mm. to realize and use that analytics so that's a cultural thing about using insights to drive action the technology is clear. You can get lots of, let's call it widgets, to plug into that to try and help improve the conversion journey, change the experience. That's a tech perspective. And then the process perspective is how do you join it all up? So you try something, it doesn't work, you change it and you try it again. Or you, with technology, the power we have today is you could try multiple things at the same time and come up with an answer. So I think what te technology gives you is the pace, the speed, and and also you could do it in a very cost efficient way. Hmm. But if you just did that and you didn't have the people taking the insights from the data and you didn't have people taking, uh, doing things differently because of that data, then you wouldn't achieve your objective. Hmm. And, I, and I've heard you use the word people a lot there. So it's, yeah. and, and I've often, you know, talked about this and, and thought about that people are really the true asset of any organization. Um, hmm. The technology the processes they're they're almost just enabling mm -hmm. people to do better things right so yes. how much do you agree with that assertion or not that people are really the main asset of the, the key yeah. in all of this no i absolutely agree with you because even if you have the technology you're gonna have to have someone to do something with it mm. so on its own it's no use and yes once you've implemented it many of these things are self-sufficient but i think absolutely people make the difference um and over time, I do think you'll find that technology it enables the business strategy. And I think technology is a core part of the business strategy. I don't, I think long gone are the days where you say, this is a business strategy. Now it's a tech strategy. I think they're part and parcel of the same thing. And that's how we look at it at Swiss Re as well is, you know, you know, I know many organizations have different approaches and they all have their positions and they all work. But what we've tried to do is make technology part of the core of what we do purely because we see it as an enabler and it's an enabler uh, rather than the than the the thing that goes first mm. what has to come first is how we help our clients how we help our customers and our partners and technology enables us to do that in a smarter better way but ultimately it's the people who join that up together that deliver the outcomes the solutions the proposals that make the difference yeah so in your opinion then how important is culture in the sort of transformation, transformation and innovation process? Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly important um, for a number of reasons. You, we, there's a you know few dimensions you have to look at. You know, first of all, the way people work together. Um, I think the the paradigm we're seeing at the moment is people are having to work differently. So I, you know, given the the power of um, technology, either the pace of technology, the available of data, the available of computational power, um, all of this enables people to do things in a much different way. Mm. So I think it is a combination of all of those things that make us make the culture a big difference. Now, from a cultural perspective, there's a you know there's a thing about uh, you have to if you have all those technologies, you can implement them together, but if it doesn't work, you now have the option to change it very fast. You haven't got to wait a year or six months to find out it's working or not. You will know in a matter of days or weeks. Now, if you take, 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 if you translate that into a cultural perspective, what is it asking us of our people? It's asking people to make quicker decisions, fail fast because we're able to, because the, the technology allows us to uh, collaborate more. You know, um, you don't have to sit next to each other to collaborate. We've proven that in the current environment. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's lots of things that come together to create the culture that harnesses the power of technology. Hmm. Yeah, I hear in that, that that technology creates a transparency and transparency gives the opportunity for us to reflect really accurately on what is happening. But once we can see that and we have a clear perspective, then 
the culture is what also supports the next phase, which is about getting mm-hmm. stuff done, right? So it's yeah. like failure. It's about you know, creation. It's about trust. Um, all of these things which go on once you have a clear view of where the world is at, because I can mm-hmm. imagine that, and maybe you've seen your fair share of this, you know, and I've seen my fair share of this is where the really the ego becomes more important than the outcome in mm-hmm. in organizations. And actually the culture is the thing that really supports the, the, the concept that we can all change, we can all transform, we can embrace the opportunities that are around us. And it's okay then to get that wrong every now and again, but we're mm. all working towards an objective that we're trying to get to. And that's where the culture, as we talked about, is really important. Yeah. And it is, you know, and, and a true sense of that. And people go to me, oh, how do you know it's working? And I said, for me, the litmus test is, you can walk into a room of 10, 15 people and you could call it the project team. And you cannot tell who is tech, who is business, mm. who is um, risk, compliance, legal, because they are a unified team, mm. all with a specialist expertise, all focusing on producing one single outcome. Mm. That That's when you know that. And, and then the other test for me is if someone is off or someone is away, somebody else could easily step in and take that take over that task without saying, we're now blocked. We can't move forward. So these are some real tangible ways you can measure where you're on that journey of real collaboration, real output, and real solving challenges. Yeah, that's a really nice sentiment, actually. And I think what I'm hearing there is in the theme that we have to be more flexible in the roles that we adopt. Um, mm. And I suppose, does that come down to sort of a learning mindset for you? And, and how important is a learning mindset? in the success of transformation innovation for you? I think you, I think we all, I think learning mindset is absolutely, because every day, <clears throat> all of us are learning things that, you know, we probably didn't know yesterday or the day before. And I think if you don't, I think curiosity is super key um, because things are changing fast. You know, so, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, about the technology aspect of it. What technology has enabled is pace and availability of data. Um, and, you know, we can now do things on our phones and buy things on our phones and, you know, transact on our phones that we were never able to do a few years ago. Mm. And all of that ha- has happened pretty fast. So I think it's uh, it's all of that coming together that allows um, that different way of working. Mm. Yeah, that's I'm actually really happy to hear that we're moving towards ways of working where there's a recognition that we're going to have to change that we're going to have to learn and that we can have different phases of our career where we're not having to continually be siloed and this is certainly what i'm seeing in in the industry as well and out there in the market is that there is an opportunity for people to reinvent themselves and because Mm -hmm. because everything is changing so quickly i look back at my career as a headhunter the way that my industry has changed is it's almost unrecognizable Mm. the way that digital like technologies and access to data has fundamentally revolutionized what we do mm-hmm. so um to think in a, in a modern day world as a headhunter for example that you wouldn't be capable of doing you know internet-based research or understanding the use of like internet-based marketing in mm-hmm. the whole process it, it would be just unmanageable um so mm-hmm. cool let's sort of switch gear a little bit because i'd like to talk about given your focus and you've seen a lot of technology transformation in your time and you've been a cto as well cto mm-hmm. Um, life capital it's been my kind of thinking for a while that, that sort of the, the ctos that are most effective keep at their center like a real focus on product mm. and we can you can we can explore product in any way you mean it It could be product in the agile sense it could be product in you know the, the truest sense of delivering something for customers mm. but i i believe the best are relentless in creating a culture that focuses on delivering for customers so Given what we've all t- we've all said, do you agree with that assertion? I'm hoping you do. <laughs> but yeah, yes, I know this is going to this podcast is going to get boring for people because we're agreeing on everything. Yeah. But no, I, I actually I do agree on that <laughs> because I um I think if I if I take a step back uh, and if I if you listen to the way I described why technology is important, I think being customer centric and using techniques like design thinking and co-creating and testing your solutions and ideas with the real users whoever those users happen to be, is super key. Mm. Um, Because otherwise, I think, you know, we all do our jobs day in, day out, and you become blinkered. 
And I often say when we're, you know, sometimes producing new products or services and people go, this is great. And I'll go, have we tested it? What do the real users really think? Because, and I say, those are the people are going to use, we're not, you know, we're not the real people who are going to be interacting with this on a day-to-day basis. It needs to resonate uh, because sometimes you get too close. So I think product centricity is key, whatever, however you design the product. And I also think we need to move from a project uh, mindset to a product mindset, um, which then links back to the whole technology and ways of working. Because what I mean by a a project mindset, you know, people go, project has a start and end, has a bunch of deliverables, milestones, and there you go. Hmm. And then I always go, actually, do you know what? The real fun starts once you've delivered it. You know, the project bit often is, you know, and I've done big programs, so I know it's not easy. But then you haven't, whilst you're in project mode, you actually haven't delivered anything and it's not being used for real. It's when that stops and you have to get into a moment of curiosity, ongoing learning, iteration, bringing the right data in, that it becomes really intrinsic, that CTOs become more product owners and product managers versus typical, um, you know, traditional uh, technologists. We still need that, absolutely. I think it's a rebalancing. Do you have any examples that you could share on where you've seen that work really well? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it, currently within within Swiss Re, if I think back to you know the role I'm doing at the moment uh, in terms of you know my role is really you know people go what does your role mean because you know chief digital transformation officer it could mean anything, and I say it's about joining the dots, and they go oh what do you mean? I said well. Clearly, we need technologies and we need deep technologies and we have them. And then we have our commercial colleagues, our functions who really understand the client engagements, the markets we work in, what is needed in the in uh, in terms of to grow our business, but to support our partners. My job is how do I connect those two? So it's more around I know what technology can do. I know what the business needs. How do I bring it together? Mm. Um, so that really is an example of I'm actually one foot in each camp uh, and and then bringing the three dimensions of the customer, the people and the culture aspects, how the way we work and how do we do poly technology that brings it together. Cool. Thank you. I think getting things done, let's, let's switch up to there because one of the most popular philosophies for managing transformation and innovation at the moment is, is agile, right? It's mm-hmm. everywhere and it's, it is becoming a bit of a buzzword, but um, agile is quite a deep philosophy as well as a practical tool. So, and I, I know Swiss Re are adopting agile. So maybe you could just talk to me a bit through that, like how you're using agile as an organization and what your your experiences are. Mm-hmm. No, sure. I mean, as you say, you're right. Agile, and and actually, everybody you ask has a different view of what that word actually means. So sometimes I often feel like banning it. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I'm, I'm like, okay, so what do we actually mean? So if I um, take it within to Swiss Re's context, we have some real proof points where we have uh, um, launched and defined and are operating whole new businesses. And our IPTQ business is an example of that, where the whole business is based on this way of working. And that encapsulates my earlier comment around how we build and change technology, the way we drive the culture, and how we write our processes. So, for example, we have, um, you know, this operates on a day-to-day basis. We have domain owners. We have people who look after. It is their job to manage a specific part of that value chain. In that team is a cross-functional team of all the experts that are required to do the job, including the control functions, so risk and compliance and legal. They are in the solution together right from start to end. They're responsible for delivering new features but also they're they're responsible for changing the features as well, Mm. using data and insights. That team has autonomy, accountability to get things done within a framework because we're a regulated industry. So we have seen it, you know, for real, how it works. And we have seen seen, um, some, you know, people go, well, why do you do Agile? I said, because it makes a difference. And the difference it makes, I've seen tangible results in at least two of the organizations I made. When I've led these kind of changes, where I've had a more traditional way of working team and a more, you know, the new way of working team, and I take on a new portfolio, 
my team who I've transitioned to the new way of working say to me, please do not make me go to work back in what they call old school, because I really love what I'm doing because humans are social animals and agility and the interaction around people in the agile way of working is all about that. So they're saying, please do not make me go back to old school. So I think from a, a colleague perspective, it's a big win. From a commercial perspective, you tend to find out your challenges faster because it gives you total transparency on a day-to-day -day basis. I can go in on a daily basis and know exactly where we're at with something. So I know we're gonna, whether we're gonna make the launch dates or we're not. So it gives you, people love it and it gives you transparency. And then thirdly and most importantly, it drives value. It drives value quicker. And our proof point in that is, you know, we used to take anywhere between six to eight months to onboard a new partner. We, are, we can now get that down to about four weeks, 60 days, roughly. So, and that gives you real commercial value. So we're not doing it because we think it's the next cool thing to do. We know that it, it's, the, it's the model that scales. We know that it's the model that people love and we know it's um, the model that empowers our teams to get stuff done. So I, I heard three kind of big themes there. Um, sort of iteration, mm -hmm. this idea of sort of getting an idea of how things are progressing all the time. That's a key tenant to Agile, right? And then you talked about speed and mm -hmm. if I understood right, cooperation as well. Yeah. Sort of way yeah. of working. So um, iteration, speed, and cooperation. What do you think about this? I had it said to me recently that Agile is more a philosophy than it is a process. Um, I think, again, for this one, I think it depends. So I think it, it definitely is a philosophy and, um, and quite controversial view. You know, the people who have been agileists, let's call it that for years. I, I used to lead a team of agile coaches I've had, and really? you get them in a room, <coughs> excuse me. Um, you get them in a room and you know, it's a philosophical question because we could debate for hours on end around whether it's philosophy, A of agile versus philosophy, B of agile. So you definitely get that um, mm. that debating. And I think that's sometimes what perhaps can frustrate people because they're like, do you know what? I don't really care. Tell me how I want to do it and I'll get on with it. Yeah. So they're looking for a process within Agile. And to be honest, there's lots of frameworks, but there isn't a process. So they're looking for a print to or a, you know, a PMP type process from Agile. And yes, there's a lots of frameworks but you can't send anybody to do it. You, the only way you really get to understand is by actually doing it. Mm. I think you actually have to put it into practice. And the second thing I would say is it, ha it, it has to fit the culture that you're operating in. Um, so if you were to, and I'll give you a random example, but if you were to take the Spotify example and implement it like for like in a very different organization, I can guarantee you wouldn't work. Because you have to, and this is my personal view, you have to adopt any philosophy, any process to the environment that you are in and then and then look to change it from that perspective. Hmm. So the, the cultural context comes back, maybe this is the old saying, right, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And um, I, I think actually for me, culture is values, right? And I think this is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm actually searching for when I'm doing my, my exec search work is, is trying to get the people to align on values because I maybe, maybe agree with this or not, but if you get the values wrong, the culture, it's like the baseline operating system. So it doesn't matter really what process you put on top of that. You've got, or you can be you know, hugely controlling. Maybe that would work, but um, in these organizations, modern organizations where we're letting people make decisions rightly and not just you know, mm. micromanaging them, they're going to operate to their baseline values often. So do you agree with that assertion? Is that kind of the, or is that sort of a, is that a clear understanding of the way that you were describing culture and the interaction with any methodology? Like yeah, and you're right. You know, you, the way you describe it is it's like the operating systems. The values are super important because it gives you that common language internally mm. uh, of how you interact with each other. So Swiss Re's values are around client centricity. And you'll have heard me talk a lot about what we do with and for our clients. Agility team spirit, a passion to perform and integrity. Those are our core values. 
and we live those day in day out and you remember them, um, which is great yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so so that is you know you know what we stand for and and it is you know yeah. ingrained because we don't often think that's what we're doing but that's why we have a, a it's called it the common playbook it's the unwritten common playbook yeah yeah values are people i think people hear it and think values oh god there's all mm. that values again but when i describe values to people the values that i search for humility integrity assertiveness and resilience those are like the ones mm. that i think are mm. great baseline indicators for you know performance and then I start, they go, well, what does that mean? And you go, well, you know, humility is like an ability to subjugate the ego. It's like ability mm. to have a learner's mindset and someone who is prepared to put others ahead of themselves. You know, it kind of mm -hmm. gets into servant leadership. And, you know, it's one of the key things we're going to learn. And then you get to integrity. And that's all businesses are, just groups of human beings forming into a community. And communities are based on trust. And then, you, then I say, well, you know, assertiveness, because you've got to be able to stand up for your ideas and those of your team. And then resilience, because you've got to be able to get up again in the face of failure, which is going to be hitting you all the time. And you're like, oh, those are values. Mm. I can see how they matter to an organization. And maybe that's the point. It's like trying to connect these somewhat sort of abstract concepts to everyday action, everyday activity. Mm. So, I mean, that's, that's maybe an interesting point to talk about. Like we talked a lot about success and how do you get things right? Um, <laughs> So maybe let's look on the flip side to that. What are the common things, common mistakes that you've seen teams make then when trying to create in transformational innovation? So I think some of the um, common mistakes are not learning. It's going to sound a bizarre one. It's, it's the fact that not stopping and learning from the mistakes. Mm. So often I think people who are closest to any kind of delivery or change know intrinsically what is working and what isn't working. But for whatever reason, sometimes just don't want to say. And there could be multiple reasons. Um, and they keep plowing on until it's too late. So I think that's the one thing is listen to your instincts, listen to the data and look at what the progress is. Um, I think the other kind of thing is, you know, you know, leaderships of, you know, if I think about my previous roles and um, and how I personally had to go through a leadership change in terms of my own development, when you know i was brought up you know when you had a project had a rag status and on you go mm. but then when i manage a, a much bigger portfolio and we did some trend analysis and said why is it that in the last two weeks of the projects going live they've been green for months and years and two weeks before they suddenly turn red there is no way no one knew that that wasn't going to happen so why was it that people weren't saying and one of the factors we realized is you know People don't like red. And when, especially when senior people see red, you know, you get a reaction. And this was, you know, this is historical. Um, in in past, I've seen this and I heard this from colleagues in different organizations. But as soon as you change how you react to somebody who's giving you bad news, guess what? People are going to give you bad news much sooner. And then you have the ability together to try and solve for that. So how do you create the culture for that, though? I mean, that that's... It's hard. It's yeah. super hard. Yeah, right. It's not easy. Um, it's yeah. really, really hard because one, you're asking people to be very different to what they've normally done. Mm. Both the um, the colleagues who want to who have that news they want to share, but also leadership community at large. Um, you're having to ask how you're going to react and change, and you know, na it's natural that we will all revert back to our com comfort zones. And people even now will say, I want a project plan. I'm like, okay, I can give you a project plan. Um, and that's, so I think it's really hard. And I think it's only over time and repetitively doing this that it will happen. And feedback, I think feedback's super important. Mm. And we, within Swissery, we have a very strong feedback culture, which I think is fantastic. And even on my email, I have a button at the top that says at any point in time, I can click on it and give someone feedback and they have a portal in which it all gets collated. And I get feedback. And I think, really you know, cool. on the spot feedback is super important because... Is that good or bad stuff? I mean, are you getting like... Both, both. Both, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, both. And I think, you know, having that, and it's bizarre, isn't it? It's how the tool enables mm. the culture. So we've always had a feedback culture, but now we've made it easier. And this is a classic example of how technology has helped. 
because then I have a central repository of all the feedback I've had through the year. It's on the spot. It's not, you know, three months after the event where I can do nothing about it or I've forgotten or that someone can't be very precise on what they're saying. Hmm. Yeah, feedback is a key pillar, in my opinion, to creating, to living a happy life. I would go as far as to say, um, because everything in our life really comes down to how we can learn from mistakes we have. And Mm. I was maybe mentioning before we started the interview that I've got a guest coming on and um, called Sheila Heen, and she's done a lot of work around feedback. And they talk about feedback as in there's like three forms of feedback. There's evaluation, there's coaching, and there's appreciation. There's three forms that they they have. And Mm -hmm. when it goes wrong, normally, in exchange with people, it's because we don't know which mode we're in and we become defensive and we maybe try to protect ourselves and then it becomes more about that than it does about the objective of trying to improve and then it really gets back to that that saying that i heard from the farnham street team and shane Parrish, which is like outcome over ego right yeah this these things about listening and learning outcome over ego great feedback it allows us in organizations groups of human beings to just do better things and actually mm. go, you know what? Failure's all right. Failure is okay because mm. that's what happens in getting to great stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, it was a tough question for me to ask you. And I know it's a very, very difficult thing. How do you create the culture for that? Because I think it's mm. probably something you, you have to work at over mm. time and um, you have to live it. Right. And yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah. So let's, let's, and I think actually all of that really comes and pays off its pays off its most when in difficult times. So mm. let's switch to this because we've probably just experienced one of the biggest and most systemic difficult times. It's a different way, different, different, terrible way mm. to describe it, but COVID. And, you know, I'd love to hear about your experiences watching Swiss Re, a company with like 14,000 people mm-hmm. distributed overnight and have to deal with everything it had to deal with. So yeah, what have been your, what's your view on, on sort of the effectiveness then of distributed working when COVID hits and, and the use of the cultural tools? And, mm. and there's a lot of points there. Yeah, and it's, like. it's, no, <laughs> absolutely. No, it's been, do you know what? It's been incredible. I remember leaving Zurich, I think it was around about the 3rd of March and the team and then it, the, the breakout in Italy had just started and the first few cases in Switzerland. And as I was leaving, you know, one of my colleagues said, uh, okay, we, we don't know when you're going to see you again. And I looked at him and I went, I don't know what you mean by that. But anyway, got on an airplane, came here and I've never been back since, you know, I've been in my <laughs> home office. So, mm. you know, none of us could have predicted, you know, what has transpired and continues to transpire. But from an organizational perspective, we have been positively surprised at how we have adapted and how quickly we've adapted. You know, our infrastructure has allowed us to do that in terms of, you know, we, we've got full MS teams, people are able to work almost immediately. Um, so that has really, really helped. Um, and then we have, you know, because we've always had a kind of a work from home policy, but now it's become more and more widespread. Then we've had to look at different ways of uh, adapting. So how do we coordinate and collaborate with our partners? So you can't get in a room and do whiteboarding. So we've now enabled whiteboarding features and functionalities mm. in teams but also tools and people have gone wow this is great so yeah. from a uh and then from a you know almost from a personal perspective you know soon after the the uncertainties of you know uh can you get shopping and all that kind of stuff that people went through and we realized this is going to go longer than any of us thought you know very quickly we turned into sort of the well-being aspects and the challenges that colleagues were going through so you know one of my colleagues has got two tiny children and the nursery's closed both parents working so how do they juggle work and looking after little ones at the same time so having absolute flexibility and have, by the way that's one of the ways you do it yeah. works <laughs> yeah definitely works yeah and and i found xbox does wonders as well <laughs> so uh, how do you make adjustments for all of your colleagues recognizing Actually, we're all in the same boat. But recently, actually, what I realized is we're all on the same sea, but in very different boats. So my situation is different. So my son's old enough to play Xbox, but my colleague's situation is different again because she's got two tiny kids and is really struggling. 
So from a work perspective, we created everything from a, you know, a virtual coffee chat room so people can drop in at a certain time, you know, quiz nights, uh, a whole range of things so we can keep that camaraderie going. And sometimes people can just come on and talk about who's been able to get the latest slot at Tesco's or Waitrose or which restaurants opened up to, um, you know, and it's become like almost a mini support facility. Mm. Um, so we've done it through, again, technology has enabled us to do that. But now we're actually thinking, you know, we have actually, some people have realized they've talked more now to each other than they would have done sat in the office. Really? That's yeah. So I think there's some real, I think there's, you know, out of a terrible situation, I think some real positives have come out. Yeah, I do too. And I, I hear in that the the idea is we've kind of humanized each other. Yes. And it yeah. seems like when we go to an office, sometimes we put on this armor, like we put our suits on, our shirts on, put a tie on, because I haven't worn a tie for a while. But um, you go into the offices and it's like another part of you. And then and that's been a quite a jarring process of go, well, people are coming mm. into my homes, right? And that that yeah. that process of coming into the home. But but I I but I would say that everything we've talked about here is the idea of like humility or there's like an idea of openness and listening and feedback. And that just mm. comes back to like just normal life and being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've seen has been a massive benefit of the impact of a pandemic is that we've all recognized each other's vulnerabilities. And, and that's okay and yeah. we need to be more attentive to how we help each other so um i'm, I'm interested and glad to hear that you've done stuff around virtual breakouts and so mm-hmm. you talked to touch on a bit there the feedback from employees it's been positive and do you think that it could be something you continue on into the future this distributed way of working yeah i mean the, the feedback uh, from the colleagues has been hugely positive you know we did a, a pulse check a couple of months ago to say how is it going you know everything from do people have the right equipment to are they being supported and the feedback was overwhelmingly um, positive um, you know clearly you know people were raising the challenges that they were having around looking after elderly relatives or dependents and children that was clearly raised as an issue but over overarching it was really positive we're going to rerun that survey in September to do another pulse check I think does is this something that becomes the the de facto way of working actually it's quite interesting I think, I don't think everybody, the whole community is going to rush back to the office. Equally, I don't think the whole community is going to stay at home. I think we're going to have a somewhere balance in the middle. So most of the people I'm speaking to are saying, do you know what? I used to go into the office five days a week, really long days. I've now realized I don't need to do that. I can go for three or four. Um, and people, So I think it's going to be much more of a balanced approach than we've ever seen before. Yeah, there's a couple of things to touch on there. And it's... Um... Agile, come back to agile, there's this sort of idea of sort of self-organizing teams and the more you have to give flexibility and ownership to individuals to give output, mm-hmm. then they can self-organize, right? They can say, mm-hmm. I need to be at home today and yeah. that's okay if my kid comes through the background because mm-hmm. I'm a human and I have children or the fact that I'm, you know, going to work from home today doesn't mean I'm just having a day off, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah. I, I like yeah. that these things tie together and that's been my experience of it as well. And there's a great, I mean, actually it's funny because for me personally, in my industry, you know, I've been kind of working remotely. Headhunting is a remote-based job and mm. you've had to almost sort of justify that in previous to, to clients saying, you know, are you going to meet the candidates face to face? Is it all going to be meeting? And I said, look, the way the market has changed is that you just don't meet every single candidate face to face because it's practically impossible when you're running, you know, a huge search with a long list of candidates to do it. Um, but that, as you've had to, I don't have to justify that anymore <laughs> because mm-hmm. yeah. we, we, it works still. We can still run searches. We can still deliver, you know, high quality candidates in a, in a mm-hmm. process. And like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And now it's less of a, a resistance. So it, I think that's been also that sometimes when we just get forced into these situations, it's really, there is a real opportunity to, to see the best in it, right? And see the best opportunity yeah. in the, and, and listen and learn as we talked about. Yeah, and it's hard, and it is hard because we've mm-hmm. had to, you know, we've we've hired entire new teams in Asia. Well, we're, I think the other part of it is this is a, we are a global business. So very much our response in every country has been different at different times. Mm. Um so we've definitely had to take a global approach. Um, 
know, for example, um, our Zurich teams are pretty much back to working normally in the office. But UK, we're still very different. And Asia, again, is very different. Um, but the good thing is we can then learn from each other as well. So yeah. that's part of it. I think in this time, where previously, you're right, people are reluctant to hire without meeting people or sign uh, you know, contracts or big vendor relationships without seeing people eye to eye. We've done all of that. You know, we've stood up a whole team in Asia in two of our offices, um, and they're mobilizing up and running. The, the teams have never met each other, but they're working. I've onboarded at least two new people during this period who've never met physically the other members of the team, and it works. It does work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, I, I, I think about, and as a headhunter, I'm looking for the things that I'm assessing during the interview process. And I'm looking at every part of the interview supposed to has a, an ability to measure and assess various things and meeting somebody face to face. It has its value. And but mm. it, its value, some of the key values, of course, are your ability to perform in a face to face environment. And if your job role, for example, has a, a requirement for you to do lots of in-person performance, then of course, mm. you know, getting done person in the room with you can be very mm. important. But if you're in a role where actually that in-person performance as such is not a high, like a, a particularly mm. important criteria, then it's diminished as a value in, and you can achieve a lot over video, over, mm. you know, phone calls, over written assessments. Um, mm. So it's actually quite interesting I was listening to a podcast right before everything happened by a gentleman called Matt Mullenweg and it's um, called Distributed. And Matt Mullenweg is the CEO of Automatic, which is the company you won't know. Many people know that name, but it's Automatic is the company that owns WordPress and everybody knows WordPress. It's right. like 30% of the internet works on. And they're a fully distributed company, over mm. a thousand people. And there is certainly a movement out there towards distributed ways of working. There are tools that are out there. And, um, I'm going to watch with interest this and, you know, as a, maybe an adopter myself of a fully distributed way of working now mm. um, to see the, the progression. But I understand for firms like Swiss Re, there will be those who want to, those who don't. And I love yeah. that phrase. We're all on the ocean or the sea together, but in different. we're on the same sea in different boats. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I live in the countryside. I live in Devon and I've got space. Yeah. And I recognize my experience has been very different from others. But um, and how blessed I've been to have this situation. But um, but yeah, there's a different future out there, and it's an interesting yeah. way that's it's going to adopt. Well, okay, so let's um, let's take this idea of change, and let's mm -hmm. just move into a bit about your kind of what, what's exciting you about the future of technology adoption for insurance. Okay, so mm -hmm. what types of technologies excite you the most when it comes to insurance right now? Uh, so I think there's something. There's probably two two key things. I think um, you know everybody talks about data. Um, insurance is a data business, so clearly that's going to excite me. But it's, it's almost data. Yeah, yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even or even or even real time data. Okay, um, yeah, so because that's <laughs> what gives you the real power to make uh, real time customer interactions. So I think the what with the availability of more and more data from lots and lots of different places, how in how that's going to enable us to provide more innovative services whether that is a better assessment of risks, innovative, more customized products for our clients and our partners, um, better insights, better resilience mapping. So I think all of that excites me because I think um, we could, we have just, we're going to just be able to unlock things we've never been able to unlock before because of the technology. I think the, the second thing that excites me about the, in the technology space is how generally in our industry, it's becoming more and more part of the main house. Uh, and what I mean by that earlier, I said about, you know, the technology is being seen core part of a business strategy, not as a something that is a separate topic. So I think hmm. that excites me as well, because then it means, um, and we've, we've seen a trend, you know, if I look at, uh, talk to my CIO and CTO colleagues across the industry, especially with COVID actually, they are being brought more to the, the decision-making table than ever before, which means that we can really enable our business strategy. So I think those are the two trends that I would say sort of jump out. Mm, so data um, at the, the, and the, the insights it can provide us. Mm. And then you talked about sort of it becoming and technology becoming in the same house as the business. So it's like it's yeah. a recognition that it's, 
it's not on a it's not on a side it is like part of the main course now it's not it's, it is yes it is what the yeah. business depends on um, yeah, and I guess if I was just to elaborate on that, you know, I guess a, a, a way of thinking about it is you know, if I take our IPTQ business model, that is a digital platform business. Okay. Because what we're able to do with the technologies digitize our industry, whether it's the core of what we do or whether it's how we distribute our products, whether it's how we connect with our partners. I think, and, and the digitization in the broadest sense, sense in terms of, yes, you can implement technology, but a lot of it is also about bringing the right talent and the right processes together to make it happen and partnering with um, InsureTechs. Yeah, this is a, this is a topic that's, that's on my mind a lot at the moment, that this idea of disruption in, in, in insurance. And I know you've talked about partnerships being really core to what you're trying mm. to achieve. And um, I wonder what you think about this sort of us and them approach and, and are you yeah, are you, are you, it doesn't sound like you're too worried about like the insure techs out there in the market. You kind of sounds like maybe you're more ready to embrace them. But yeah, what do you think about that us and them mentality? Yeah, and, 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 and I yeah, and I think it, and I, I'm a strong believer it shouldn't be an us and them mentality because I think it's going to be a partnership that's going to be the winning formula. Um, because because I've seen it, you know, I went through this in the banking industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we had you know, that the the advent of fintechs and the accelerators. Um, and some have come, you know, some have come through and we've seen uh, in the UK, especially lots of new new banks, neobanks uh, that have come. But if you look at some of the expertise, they may, the expertise might have come from more a traditional world using the modern technology to evolve it and also not having any legacy platforms. This is what we struggle with sometimes in the insurance industries, the legacy mm. uh, uh, perspective of some of our capability. Now, I've been lucky enough that in IPTQ we don't because we've had greenfield sites and be able to take advantage of the best technology available and partner with fintechs in a very easy way and that's why i think it's going to be a partnership because with the with the bigger brands of in the insurance world you have the knowledge the expertise the risk know-how and the partnerships Um, and what you find with insurtechs they have sometimes a deep technical capability in one or two parts of the value chain Mm. Uh, so that's where I think the two come together to make it win. My impression of banking was that um, it was a less humble industry than insurance. Mm. And for that reason, I think they maybe missed a lot of opportunity for transformation and change and technology adoption. Um, you may agree or may not with that. But um, when I look at insurance, you know, and I think to myself that if it is to really make the best of what is happening, they, they're going to have to look outside of insurance and bring mm-hmm. the best skills in. Um, what are your views on that? Do you think you can still come into insurance as an outsider and offer a lot of value? I mean, then again, maybe you, yes, exactly what you did. So maybe I'm going to answer that. But yeah, what do you think about those? Yeah, I guess I'm a bit biased. Services? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe you want to explore those who are completely outside of financial services then and what they could bring an offer do you think that's that's something that yeah happen? i think it's absolutely and we've done that in our hiring strategy if i look at the the broader hiring strategy we had in iotq businesses we have got people from um the big tech giants we have got people in from the, you know totally different industry to come in and help us uh, shape but then again those colleagues will only succeed when they harness the insurance knowledge that we have in the company mm-hmm. yeah. so again it's almost and i'm you know pairing somebody with in-depth insurance knowledge with somebody who comes in totally from a you know um, one of the tech giants or from a non-insurance not even an, i'd say go far as a non-financial services background partnering that together that's when we see the magic yeah i, I- I, you know, it's funny because I actually explored a bit into sort of habit forming. And I, I spoke with a previous guest on the podcast, um, a gentleman called Guy Duncan, who's the CTO at Tide in, in London. And he had a, a great opinion on this and talked about, um, you know, systems and how one of the big challenges to change in organizations is is the systems. And, and I thought about it in habit forming, like if you're, so for example, if you want to lose weight, right, um, the goal is I want to lose weight but your fridge is full of stuff that's like you know cakes and beer and donuts and things well that's your system your goal is i want to lose weight but the, the fridge is your system and actually we're always going to fall back to our level of mm-hmm. our systems versus those things and i think sometimes when you bring people from outside of an industry they're prepared 
to think and create different systems and they're mm-hmm. to not be so tied to what has gone before. But you made a really important, important point that the performance then inside that realm is dependent upon really detailed experience of, of relevant experiences. And if, yes. You know, so it's a kind of a, it's, there's a dance there to make, isn't there? There's a tension yeah. then between creating new systems, but performing in, in a sector with the knowledge. So, um, yeah. And it's that collaboration, that's where collaboration becomes key. And going back to one of the points you've been previous about being humble to say, okay, well, I've already done it this, this way. It doesn't mean I have to carry on doing it this way. And being, being open to curiosity about learning and changing and seeing the value of new things and how you can bring it together. Because, you know, if you take any of those examples in isolation, if you just take the you know people who've come from a non-insurance, non-FS background, purely technology, software type background, but can build the best things in the world, if they don't work with an insurance product or the actuarial results or the pricing model, guess what? They're not going to work. They're not going to deliver the value that you need. And vice versa, if you continue to do maybe some of the, the pricing or the actuarial or some of the more deeper insurance things in the traditional way, are we going to be able to keep pace? Are we going to be able to do it fast enough? So that's why, and, and distribution and partnership, it's almost, you. that's why I think you need to le- learn from both sides. And what empowers that is a sense of humility, mm-hmm. of working together as a group. And that's the culture, right? That you've got to pursue. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe that's like a, and we come back to people and people that were things doing the technology you talked about earlier in the processes. So, so, um, Maybe at this point we could start talking a bit about well-being and resilience because mm-hmm. we're we're on this we're in we're in different boats we're on the same ocean as you put it's on the same sea I keep butchering your your uh, <laughs> your metaphor there um, <laughs> so sort of I, I was kind of just interested in what you know what you advice you give to your team then about managing their well-being in this COVID environment but also when undergoing lots of change generally do you have any things that you advise, anything that you do, what, yeah, please unpack that as you would like. No, absolutely. So I think, it, you know, importantly is the, the lines between work, um, you know, and home are totally blurred. So I think you have to do whatever works for you, but you have to take a break. So it could be, you know, take time off, take a break, um, you know, go and do something different, invest time with your family and friends, um, find something that, you know, you, we all know what gives us energy and what saps energy. We'll go and do the stuff that gives you energy. We're all always going to think um, that we can do more and more, but you have to do something that gives you energy. I think part of that is, you know, I know somebody, and I think it's a brilliant example. They love that time between leaving the office and, uh, and uh, coming home, that commute time. Um, because it, it provided them with a mental break of right now I need to switch off work and I, I'm, I'm now going to do something else. Of course, in COVID, they weren't doing that. So what they do is at the end of the day, when they finish off their clog off their laptop, they'd go for a walk around the block. That was their commute. And then they'd come back and go, right, now I'm at home. It's just simple things. Like that. I thought, wow, that is such a great, great idea. Um, but I think we all have to be unique. I think the other thing actually, and this is probably social media, the other pressure I think that COVID is brought on is people suddenly started doing things they've never done before. So you've heard people about baking and, you know, the stores ran out of flour, baking and taking up extra sports and learning languages. And bizarrely, I think that in itself put a pressure on people to be more productive when it was hard dealing with what we had to deal with anyway. And so, you know, even at one point I went, well, I'm not baking. I'm not doing this. I'm spending longer at work. What am I doing wrong? (laughs) And I just went, no, stop, you know, this is just ridiculous. So it's the, you know, the usual FOMO, fear of missing out thing going on, yeah. playing out in COVID. So and because then you see people yeah. for posting pictures of, look what I baked. And I'm like, well, I've got time to do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible <laughs> at baking even before COVID. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I, th- I thought about well-being actually. And I, I mean, from my own personal experience, um, this is a topic that I'm, I'm quite passionate about is um, I meditate, I, um, I fast and I, I do kind of other philosophies that I'm interested in and I found actually that I was very glad that I had those going into the sort of the the crisis the COVID crisis because about 50% of those absolutely crumbled in the face of Mm. the huge amount of change and you're right it's sort of like you just got to try and get through it to some point but then Mm. find the new rhythm and and have some new practices and things that you can support you 
Um, and I've had to even invent new ones now as well. Like you said, the walk at the end of the evening is actually one I do, just a, mm. a walk with my daughter around sort of the woods around here in, in the village that I live in. And, and that's just mm. been a, a great time to be present, to be out in nature, to find some grounding when I definitely found my time at the desk has significantly increased <laughs> for mm. some odd reason. Um, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so I just wondered about um, influences on you, Pravina, because I mean, people who know you and like, sort of talk to people about you, they, they would say, you know, you're really somebody who like lives the idea of like, you know, uh, a humble leader and someone who is really open and considerate. And so, but you, you so they say that you live those. So that's a nice compliment for you, by the way. Um, I'll pay them all later. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Give them some baking, some fresh baked yeah. bread, right? <laughs> um, um, so who's been an influence on you to help shape the way that you approach work? You know, it's bizarre. And, and this is probably a cliched answer, but I, I definitely think it's my family. Uh, so my parents, um, you know, came over to the UK before I was born, um, but their work ethic is astounding. So I think, and then I've seen them evolve over the years. Um, so I think they've had a huge impact on uh, the way I am and what I do. And I'm also the... Um, the oldest of a big family of sisters and all of us do very very different things okay. but we're very close as a group um how many sisters it, do you have there's seven of us all together wow seven yes yes amazing yeah. your parents really did work hard that is yeah, incredible. yeah yeah and uh wow. my um and you know often people say your dad's very quiet i mean well he has to be you can imagine all of us in the house together <laughs> so you know so that that you know, they're very working class, worked in factories in the Midlands. So that's my route. So I'm, you know, incredibly proud of that. And that's really what's driven the work ethic. Mm. Um, but also about being open because constantly you have to learn. Um, so I think that's probably the root of it. But you know what? You learn from people every day, even today, you know, someone, you know, and I think it's great. Someone, you know, as a new member of my team gave me feedback, a developmental feedback around I did something and said, well, that's how made that make me feel. I went, oh, yeah, I didn't think that was going to be happening. Mm. So I think it's about um, everybody I interact with, you know, I learn something from or observe something. Um, and then you just say, OK, well, how can I adopt it? Or you, you I think it's just a learning mindset. I think it's really important. Mm. I wonder, actually, you know, I, I've actually noticed I've, I've got friends who live in the village here and they've got eight children. And um, the children I've noted, actually, have been are very good at the emotional sort of cooperation because I think, mm. I think when you're in such a big group of people you've got to be very attuned to emotional context and like how people are feeling and what they're doing and how to negotiate between those relationships and mm-hmm. um yeah I've, I've sort of i mean i i have three children and it's it's i mean that's you know, there's five of us and that that's that's difficult enough so i can only imagine mm. when you layer on top yeah. of that the more and more numbers yeah. how complicated it gets um yeah is that something that you would agree with actually like understanding that that those early experiences might help you understand the emotional context yeah without a doubt yeah i think it does and even now it's hilarious you know everybody's doing zoom calls so we have a family zoom call every sunday but we have to structure it so we have to do a quiz or something because otherwise this is no way you get a word in edgeways so <laughs> fantastic the the lad of a family um that, yeah. i'd love to watch that that would be great the the uh the, uh, the quiz. Yeah, I've done. I've done my fair share of quizzes. I'm understanding yes, that as exactly. well. Quizzes are I'm one of the big ones. I'm not doing any more quizzes. Yeah, anymore. no more quizzes. Thank you for me either. My quiz knowledge is terrible as well. So yeah. my child, my, my son is better than I am. It's terrible. Um, cool. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I was asking you a bit about books that have influenced you, and or or even actually, what are your favourite books to read? I don't care if they're like you know just sort of a fiction book or if they're a mm. business book. Do you have anything that you know you you really enjoy you know reading? So that's, yeah. Uh... yeah do you know what? it's a real mix so um i like um uh, so there is um the philippa gregory novels they're all this goes back to history which is written about all of um the tudor wives and the princesses they they are fascinating because he actually tells you and clearly a part of it is um fiction but part of it is built on historical context but you get a real deep insight into you know, how they all networked and actually was, the, you know, an organization, how they operated, the power place. That's a really fascinating series. Mm. On the flip side, um, you know, you know, I read, 
I love um, autobiographies and biographies. So, and they, they range from everything. So I, the both I've read the all both the Obama books, um, and Michelle Obama's book. Right. Yeah, one that's so popular. Yeah, and they are fascinating. And even her, uh, Michelle's book is brilliant. Hillary Clinton's book, and so mm. all of these just gives you insight into how do these people do their jobs because they're incredibly varied and disparate. And the, the other one I read the other day, although I'm not into football, but yeah, I have to be sometimes, is uh, uh, Alex Ferguson's book. And, you know, the bit that struck at me there, struck to me there is how he dealt with Cantona is very different to how he dealt with um, Beckham. And even in the locker room, the, the whole leadership philosophy was playing out. And I went, Oh yeah, why wouldn't he do that? At the end of the day, he's the leader. He just happens to lead a football team. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. I, um, on, on the football thing, I don't know this about you. You said you're from the Midlands, so um, do you do you support a football I, team? No, <laughs> no, I do. It's Manchester United. If you were going to ask me who, I'm oh, going to have no. to say. It's, well, yes, exactly. That sorry, Pravina, that was a loaded question because I'm originally from the Midlands as well, and my team's okay. Aston Villa. So. I knew uh, you were going to say yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought we were going to be able to have another moment in kind of quick meeting there, but no, you're there. There's our moment of controversy. Yeah, yeah Manchester. We we won't talk about that anymore. Um, you'd have you'd have been a happy bunny at the weekend. Bob. I was very very happy at the weekend. For those of you who don't who are listening and have no idea about this, Aston Villa um, survived in the Premier League this this year by one point. Um, so yes, that's uh, making me uh, a very happy person. Um, <laughs> fantastic. You know, Pravina. I, we can draw it to a close here, and I just like to say thank you so much for the time you've given me today. But if people want to find you or sort of learn a bit more, where can they find you? Do you have like social media or something? Like that? Yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. A profile on LinkedIn, uh, and it's and then on my email. You know, the company it's at swissre.com as well. So both of those. Brilliant, Pravina. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge, and um, again, thank you. Thank you. No, it's been great chatting to you today. Thanks. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.